Welcome to the Only You Podcast, your boy Lo Jackson coming to you live this great, beautiful October afternoon. Thank you all for tuning in. This is a podcast where we like to do books based on self-help or talk about them. I like to elaborate on things that may help somebody pick themselves up, dust themselves off, and get themselves going, whether it be neural pathways, neuroplasticity, whether it be, you know, understanding the way memories work, the way a thinking tree in your brain works, the way you got to manage your mind. And if you don't manage your mind, I will say this, that if you don't manage your mind to an extent, you will have several ailments like depression, um, personality disorders come from, you know, stress. We all know in the psychological world that bipolarism schizophrenia those are all brought on by huge unbearable stress factors in someone's life that had we had the tools to um work through those things and the people surrounding us to be there to lean on when we're having a crutch in our mind that nobody can see you know, it's easy to help somebody when they have a scratch or a cut, you give them a band-aid, but you know, when somebody has a scratch or a cut from a traumatic situation or from a trauma that they endured at some point and their mind went back to the drawing table and they reassessed the situation and came back depressed and stressed and they have bipolarism or whatever it may be. Um, in those terminologies, bipolarism and schizophrenia, they should never be tossed around lightly. I once was called bipolar back in, um, I'd say probably early 2000, 2001. I had no idea what it meant, but it stuck with me. It was a peculiar word I had never heard. So I went to the doctor and I asked the doctor, Hey, you know, somebody called me this and I want to know, you know, did they know something about me that I'm not seeing? And my doctor, he stops in the middle of doing a physical and he says, don't you ever, ever say that you're bipolar. He said, people these days are throwing around terminologies. And he told me this, he said, if you go back 20 years from right now, from 2000, all the way back to, you know, 1980 or around that area, there will be some other terminology that they use then to describe people's mental states and it's weird how they become popularized and people just oh yeah he's he's a he's schizo he's bipolar she's nuts you know she's bipolar well he told me don't ever use that term lightly because it actually takes a whole entire medical team the state that you live in and people of high professional statutes to deem you bipolar and he told me don't ever think that but on the only you podcast i like to do books uh, based on self-help, psychological, neuroplasticity, neuropathways. Um, and I like to give everybody some coping skills this season. Last season, I didn't do much on coping skills because I was too busy trying to build the podcast and find an audience base, which I have an audience base now. And I thank you guys so much for listening. Thank you for following me. And thank you for the emails and the comments. Somebody recently told me that I had a soothing voice. I will say that I've never been told I have a soothing voice, so hey fan, thank you, you made my day, put a smile on my face, I went out there and showed all my friends that you said I had a soothing voice, so now I'm, I'm going crazy trying to figure myself out, you know, <laughs> I gotta pull my soothing voice out of the closet and get on this podcast and let you guys know that today we're gonna be going over a book by Sigmund Freud, which, 
you know, uh, Sigmund Freud is one of the greatest um, psychological, um, psychoanalysis, um, you know, gentleman, or I don't know what you would call him, you know, a uh, person, you know, Sigmund Freud, his real name is actually Sigismund Scalomo, not Slomo, but Scalomo Freud. <laughs> he was born on May 6th, 1856, and his unfortunate date of death was September 23rd, 1939. So, I mean, in reality, this guy is still relevant, and some of his theories have sparked some of the greatest findings of the mind and psychology ever, you guys. Like, this dude was, man, he was one hell of a thinker. I know that. Um, he was a, an Austrian neurologist and the founder of psychoanalysis, which, I mean, psychoanalysis is a, is a big deal these days. And, you know, up until, like, in, 19, in the 80s, when you would go to school to learn about the brain, you would be being taught by, you know, um, neurologists. You know, they had no idea, you know, what neuroplasticity was or neuropathways. They hadn't gotten that far. So, you know, if you went to school in the 80s, you know, to be a neurologist, you got taught by doctors that were in that field. And psychoanalysis was one of the things that they studied then, too. And now we know about neuropathways, neuroplasticity, and tons of other neuro factors that make the mind and the memories and the thought trees so much easier to manage with all the writings and teachings that people have piggybacked off of Sigmund Freud. Um, he's a, uh, a clinical, he had a clinical method for evaluating and treating pathologies and the psyche through dialogue between a patient and a psychoanalysis. And that's what the psychoanalysis is, is the evaluating and treatment. Um, I found that this book that he wrote in 1899, it's an oldie, but a goodie, The Interpretation of Dreams. Fresh out of school, you know, he, he wanted to write this book. I found that wild, you know. Um, he had, I think, um, five children. He, uh, he studied in the fields of neurology uh, psychotherapy and psychoanalysis at the University of Vienna. And if you guys don't know this, the three giants in psychology went to the University of Vienna and all around almost the same time, like all the three giants crossed pathways at some point, talked, that's Carl Jung, um, um, or no, I'm sorry, uh, Carl, or yeah, yeah, Carl Jung, Adler, and Sigmund Freud. And I, I find all three of them, and Adler is like the exact opposite. Anything that Sigmund Freud would come out with, he would come out with a psychoanalysis and a writing to counteract anything that Sigmund Freud said. So Sigmund Freud actually believed that all the traumas in your past have made you who you are today. So like your mom dying in that car accident at age three, it helped propel you into who you are today. Um, and he, that was one of his beliefs, you know, Freud was born to a Galatian Jew, to Galatian Jewish parents, um, in Aust, in Aust, excuse me, if I could talk in an Austrian empire, he qualified as a doctor of medicine in 1881 at the university of Vienna, which I told you that already upon completing his, um, habilitation in 1885, he was appointed 
a docent in neuropathy and became an affiliated professor in 1902. Freud lived and worked in Vienna because in reality, he was like the Elon Musk of the psychological world. I mean, we had had some psychological stuff written down. Obviously, they were studying the brain back then, but not like this guy. This guy had a mind beyond other minds, if that makes sense. And um, uh, having set up his clinical practice there in 1886 in Vienna, um, in 1938, Freud left Austria to escape the Nazi persecution. He died in exile in the United Kingdom in 1939. Can you believe that, you guys? From the Nazis, man. He, he could have lived longer and made way more amazing findings and been questioned and just his brain needed to be picked more than what it was, I believe, before he died. And that's my own opinion. And uh, founding psychoanalysis, Freud developed therapeutic techniques such as the use of free association, which I don't know if you guys know what free association is. It's the expression as by speaking or writing of the content of consciousness without censorship, as an aid in gaining access to unconscious um, processes. And that's a, that's a big deal. So free association is something that, I, like I said, only an idiot writes things down because then he never forgets. Which that saying actually is saying he's the smartest dude in the room because he don't forget because he wrote it down. <laughs> so, uh, and he discovered the, uh, he, he discovered uh, transference. And if you don't know what transference is, is a phenomenon within the psychotherapy in which the feelings, attitudes, and desires a person had about one thing are unconsciously projected onto the here and now. It usually concerns feelings from a primary relationship during childhood. At times, this uh, transference can be considered inappropriate. Transference was first described by Sigmund Freud, the founder of psychoanalysis, who considered it an important part of the psychoanalytic treatment and it must have worked because people are still studying it to this day you guys so you know thank you for tuning in this is the only you podcast it's your boy Lo jackson and today we're doing the interpretation of dreams by mr sigmund freud one of the greatest guys in the psychological world freud's redefinition of sexuality included its uh infantile forms led him to formulate the Opetus, uh, Epitus Complex, which, I don't know, man, super creepy, kind of, you know, I, I don't know if I totally agree with this, which, I mean, I kind of get where it's coming from and what it's saying, but here, I'll, I'll let you know what the Epitus Complex is, it's a, it's a psychoanalytic theory, Sigmund Freud introduced the concept in his book, Interpretation of Dreams, and coined the expression in his paper, a special type of choice of object made by men, super creepy. Because it has to do with sex, guys. Like, uh, kind of like, you know, girls want to sleep with their dads and they want to get rid of their mom. And boys want to sleep with their moms and get rid of their dads. And I'm like, I do not agree. But then again, my dad has been dead for, well, almost 40 years. So, who knows? Um, Freud's uh, original formulation of the Epidus Complex is a purportedly universal phrase in the life of a young boy in which he states his father... Uh, and wishes to have sex with his mother. These wishes may be unconscious, which that's freaking stupid, man. I don't agree with that. I, I just find it odd. And I mean, I understand that, like, I, I don't know. I don't understand, honestly. I do not. Freud later um, expanded this idea into the claim that 
both boys and girls are subject to the Oedipus complex with different results. Boys experience castration anxiety, which castration anxiety is the fear of uh, emasculation in both the literal and metaphorical sense. Castration anxiety is an overwhelming fear of damage to or loss of the penis. That's super weird, you guys. Come on. Is that not stupid and weird? But, you know, think about this. This is the 18, the end of the 1800s, you know. I mean, we, we are just, we're, they're still rebuilding from the Civil War. They don't have telephones and TVs and gadgets in their face controlling every little thing they do. And the government using all these companies to manipulate their minds. So he was actually at a point when everything was slowed down. Everything was all about calm thinking factors, using your neural pathways to really dive deep. You know, and I mean, Nikolai Tesla at the time too was doing the same thing, but in different areas. Um, and I find, I find uh, Sigmund Freud, he's an interesting guy, but very, very odd. And sometimes the term positive epitus complex is used to refer to a child's sexual desire for the opposite sex parent and hatred for the same sex parent. While negative epitus, epitus complex refers to the desire for the same sex parent and hatred for the opposite sex parent. See, now Adler came back and did a different one. And maybe I'll do his book with it. He had done um, counteracting Sigmund Freud's The Interpretation of Dreams. Uh, the, exi the existence of the Oedipus complex is not well supported by empirical evidence, see? And I, that's why I don't agree with it. Critics have charged that by attributing sex desire to children, the theory has served as a cover-up for sex abuse of children, or, you know, like pedophiles and whatever out there. Scholars and psycho psychologists uh, have criticized it as incapable of applying to same-sex parents and as incapable uh, with the widespread aversion to incest. And that's what, it, I mean, that's what he was getting at, you know, because, I mean, no, no, yeah, yeah. It wasn't um, Adler, it was actually uh, Carl Jung came out with the Electra complex to counteract this. And it's a non-Freudian uh, psychology. So Adler and Jung were kind of on the outs. They, they sometimes agreed with Freud, though. They liked his ideas. Um, and the electrocomplex is a theory of psychoanalysis, is a girl's psychosexual uh, competition with her mother for possession of her father, or vice versa, you know, the boy in possession of the mother. It's like, wow, man, that's, that's wild, man. Those are some great minds, you know. I mean, like, I don't know if, like, they're trying to, like, rival each other and... Um, I just, I, 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 I found this whole read really insane, but, you know, Sigmund Freud actually was a struggling addict back then, you know, I mean, in, in the anatomy of addiction, medical historian uh, Howard Markle details the cocaine addictions of Sigmund Freud and William Halstead, um, both medical revolutionaries a century ago, and uh, Markle discussed what their stories tell us about one of modern medicine's miracle drugs and the timeless nature of addiction. So, Sigmund Freud and William Halstead were two medical revolutionaries. Freud, the well-known father of psychoanalysis, Halstead, the less well-known father of modern surgery, but just beneath the black and white success, there's another story.
Both men shared a binding and blinding addiction to cocaine. Is that not crazy, you guys? Wow. You know, having, see, like, even even me, you know, I'm doing these podcasts, I'm reading all these psychoanalytical books, you know, and trying to pass this information on to you, but I am still going through things in my life. I am still human. I am still getting up standing up, taking a step and repeating every day. I am dusting myself off when things get me down, things hurt, things are confusing. It's life. But there are people out there, there are pathways that you can go and people you can call and others you can lean on. You don't just, it don't just have to be family anymore. You know, um, in a new book called An Anatomy of Addiction, which I would highly recommend you guys check that one out too, uh, pediatrician Howard Markle tells how the two tried to ward off self-destruction in the quest for knowledge. Um, and I find that this is really, really interesting, you know. So what was the connection between Sigmund Freud and William uh, Halstead? Well, they both were contemporaries. They never met, or at least I can't find any evidence. But they were braided. Their lives were braided together. They were bound together by fascination with cocaine and several medical papers that some... Uh, they each wrote, or some, they read about the latest news miracle drug of the era in 1884. Do you guys know what that uh, miracle drug was of that era? <laughs> yeah, you guessed it, cocaine. So here we are in the medical library of William Halstead at John Hopkins University, one of the great medical centers in the world, and he was a first here. What did he do? And here's Dr. Dr. Howard Markle says, most of the modern safety procedures we take of how to cut open a body, how to handle the tissue very delicately and gently so that it heals well, how to suture it correctly, this was all William Halstead. He was also fascinated with antiseptic surgery, not, not introducing germs into the surgical wound. So at this point in medical history, cocaine was found to do what? that would allow Halstead to do these things in surgery and Freud to do all these things with his medicine. Here you had something you could inject or treat or rub on there or it numbed it to the surgeon's knife. And so Halstead became fascinated with using this deeper and deeper into the body to do all sorts of procedures without putting a patient under. So Halstead got involved with cocaine by experimenting with it in ways to use it in surgery and you know you guys like think about the times though back then if had had freud and um halstead not you know written these papers and voiced their opinion about cocaine i don't think that it would ever been scheduled as a class one drug until way later but these two were huge guys you know and people were watching them back then so, you know, you know, Halstead got involved in experimenting with cocaine in his surgery. Yes, it, it was very common for many doctors in the late 19th century and the early 20th century to use themselves as guinea pigs. See, and if they didn't, we would have known, we would not know all these things. And no doctor at this time knew of the terrible addictive effects of cocaine. You know, you guys, and I want to share this too, when I was in school, um... I learned that, you know, it, once a person, you know, because like a lot of times you hear about cocaine being a party drug. You're in Vegas, man. Let's do some lines, man. Whatever. 
But in reality, a lot of times cocaine's being used nowadays in bars. And so a guy has, you know, seven drinks and then a buddy's like, oh, let's do this line of cocaine. He does the line of cocaine. It enters his system through the blood-brain barrier and hits the liver first. It goes right to the liver. The cocaine, the alcohol is already in the liver, you know, because it's trying to break down the enzymes and not let it pass on and kill you because it would kill you without your liver. So inside of the liver, the cocaine and the alcohol mix, and it makes another drug that's 10 times powerful than cocaine. That's called cocaethylene. And this is what causes cocaine-induced heart attacks. Like the guy from, uh, he was on TV. He was one of those, not the Sham Wow guy, but uh, uh, Billy, uh, no, oh, I can't, Billy May. Yeah, Billy May with the awesome auger. You know, he actually died of a cocaine-induced heart attack. He stood up on a plane, hit his head, and he got paranoid, and it made his heart explode when he hit his head. And he died because he had cocaethylene in his system. He had done cocaine before um, the plane trip, and then he had had alcohol on the plane and before, and it killed him. So, you know, and like this said, that these doctors were guinea pigs back then. They used themselves. And no doctor at th this time knew of the terrible addictive effects of cocaine none of this had been figured out yet and so the first arm to be put out and injected was Halstead's is that not crazy you guys so did Halstead understand at the time what he was doing to himself at some point he did it when he still lived in New York and he was literally ruining his career he stopped going to the operating room he stopped going to the hospital. He stopped going to uh, medical meetings. And in fact, at one point, he was called down to the emergency room, bombed on cocaine. He literally pulled away from the table and said, I can't operate, and walked out. Took a cab back to his townhouse and skittered away the next seven months high on cocaine. You know, Halstead eventually committed himself to an insane asylum in Rhode Island, hoping to be freed of his addiction. But in those days, there was no real treatment. So for the rest of his life, he struggled with this disease. And, you know, and it's, it's an ailment. You know, I mean, addiction is nothing to joke about. You can do so much mental work on the mind and be okay, but, dude, be so addicted and struggling in so many other quiet areas of your life that you're not even paying attention to. And I do this, too, at times because we all have addictions. I don't care who you are. You know, even that Starbucks line is wrapped all the way around to the moon. Yeah, that's an addiction, man. That sugar is causing thyroid problems in women left and right. Don't play around because there's going to be a lawsuit someday against Starbucks. And that's my own opinion just for the fact that I'm watching all these girls have thyroid, you know, Herthel cell thyroid cancer left and right. And they're like, oh, I don't know what's wrong. I'm not doing anything different. Yeah, you're drinking coffee from that place that's packing it full of sugar. <laughs> but, you know, Halstead, you know, he... He literally was really struggling. He struggled with the disease for the rest of his life, you know, across the Atlantic. Um, and long before psychoanalysis, a young Dr. Freud also believed that cocaine might be his ticket to fame and fortune. One of his closest friends was addicted to morphine, and Freud published journal articles proclaiming cocaine was the cure. But he also had a more personal interest in the drug's effect because he was addicted to it. Freud loved the way cocaine made him feel. And most people do, but it's way highly addictive instantly. And, and some people, they say they try it the first time and it's over with. They turn into, you know, that's where the term crackhead came from because 
it's how addictive cocaine really is. You try it one time, you might just get hooked overnight. And he was very interested in the psychological components. For one, it did make him feel better when he was sad. He also was amazed at how it made him talk about things endlessly that he thought were locked away in his brain. Sound familiar? That's that's me, man. I'm doing it right now on the Only You podcast, Low Jackson. <laughs> that's talk therapy, but without the toxic side effects of cocaine. But he got to like it a little bit too much. Did any of uh, his writings, the dreams, the sense of euphoria, all the things he had got from using cocaine, did any of those uh, things lead to anything that we now see in psychiatry today? Well, it did. It, it did. To begin with, the idea of talk therapy, where you talk freely or free association, from which we talked about earlier, from one thing to another, may have been inspired by the cocaine unleashing his tongue or his repressed memories. But most importantly, cocaine haunts the pages of the interpretation of dreams. The, the model dream is a cocaine dream. What addiction therapists would call a using dream. He was using cocaine quite a bit in 1895 on himself to the point he was having chest pain. He was depressed and he also, his nose was so congested he had to have a surgery to open it up with a knife so he could breathe. Lots of signs that you might want to lay off the stuff. Is that not something? Yeah, definitely you want to lay off if you're struggling that bad. In the 1890s, after almost killing a patient while under the influence of cocaine, Freud stopped using the drug. He was after that when some of his most famous works were produced. When cocaine was being used by Freud and Halstead at this point in time, did the world look at cocaine as something fantastic or something to be experimented with? How was it viewed? All they say were the good aspects. No one knew down the road. It was very obvious when you had all these addicts that were created and it was overprescribed, as was morphine and opium for everything. You know, because, I mean, they were miracle drugs, you know, and they cured, they were the cure-all. They were the snake oil and the fish oil of uh, the, eight, the end of the 1800s. <laughs> and it, it wasn't until about five or ten years, or maybe even 20 years later, that people started to say, hey, everybody, I know is addicted to this stuff. There was no such thing as controlled substances either. You didn't need a prescription. You could just buy it at a drugstore on your own. Is that not crazy? It really outlines the morality play that continues to this day of every blockbuster pharmaceutical agent. This drug, when it comes out, is the greatest, the newest, the best. And then, you know, just like uh, when they came out with, uh, they, they took pesticides in the 70s and turned it into dextrose, monocrose, sucrose, and they put it in your drinks. And then at the end of the 80s, Pepsi was with calling all their drinks because everybody was falling dead from pesticides being in their soda. And you think I'm kidding, do your research, go back and look. Every little fake sugar that's out there in your sodas, that's pesticides, people, and they're killing you slowly and they're causing cancers. And I mean that, do your research. And today I'm doing The Interpretation of Dreams by Sigmund Freud. It was published in 1899, and I just got done reading a little rendition about how, you know, uh, 
you know, Halstead, the surgeon, and Freud were highly addicted to cocaine, but at the end, I wanted to share with you, Sigmund Freud actually got off the cocaine, and Halstead didn't. You know, he suffered from addiction forever after that, because I find addiction and the people I've known to be addicted, I find some, they get to a point that they recover and they're fine, but I find some that get, they, you know, they open, they hit rock bottom, they open that trap door, and they fall even farther and I got somebody close to me, and I seen him not long ago, and I, I thought, wow, man, this dude used to be a cool-ass cat, and man, now he's just totally gone from, you know, years of uh, chemical abuse. And so, and today we're doing the interpretation of dreams, and this is the industry, and the intro, if I could talk, sorry guys, the introductory remarks. In attempting a discussion of the interpretation of dreams, I do not believe that I have overstepped the boundaries of neuropathological interests. For on psychological investigation, the dream proves to be the first link in a chain of abnormal psychic structures whose other links, the historical phobia, the obsession, and the delusion must, for practical reasons, claim the interest of the physician. The dream, as will appear, can lay no claim to a corresponding practical significance. Its theoretical value as a prodigium is, however, all the greater, and the one who cannot explain the origin of the dream pictures will strive in vain to understand the phobias, obsessive, and delusional ideas, and likewise their therapeutic importance. But this relation to which our subject owes its importance is responsible also for the deficiencies in the work before us. The surfaces of fracture, which will be found so frequently in this discussion, correspond to so many points of contact at which the problem of the dream formation touches more comprehensive problems of the psychopathy, excuse me, psychopathology, which cannot be discussed here and which will be subjected to future elaboration if there should be sufficient time and energy and if further material should be forthcoming peculiarities in the material i have used to uh elucidate the interpretation of dreams have rendered this publication difficult i can only express the hope that the reader of this work putting himself in my difficult position will show forbearance and also that all persons who are inclined to take offense at any of the dreams reported will concede freedom of thought at least to the dream life. If there has arisen a demand for a second edition of this rather difficult book before the end of the first decade, I owe no gratitude to the interest of the professional circles to whom I appealed in the preceding sentences. My colleagues in psychiatry apparently have made no effort to shake off the first surprise which my new conception of the dream evoked. And the professional philosophers who are accustomed to treat the problem of dream life as a part of the state of consciousness, devoting to it a few, for the most part, identical sentences, have apparently failed to observe that in this field could be found all kinds of things which could would inevitably lead to a thorough transformation of our psychological theories. The behavior of science, scientific critics could only justify the exception that this work of mine 
was destined to be buried in oblivion, and the small troop of brave pupils who follow my leadership in the medical application of the psychoanalysis and also follow my example in analyzing dreams in order to utilize these analysis in the treatment of neurotics would not have exhausted the first edition of the book. I therefore feel indebted to that wide circle of intelligent seekers after those uh, whose cooperation has procured for me the invitation to take up anew after nine years the difficult and in so many respects fundamental work of this book. And thank you guys for listening. And today I'm doing The Interpretation of Dreams by Sigmund Freud. I appreciate you listening and following me. You guys are great. Whereas a period of nine years elapsed between the first book and second edition of this book, the need for a third edition has appeared after little more than a year. I have I have reason to be pleased with this change, but just as I have not considered the earlier neglect of my work on the part of the reader as a proof of its unworthiness, I am unable to find and the interest manifested at present a proof of its excellence um this this is a really good read you guys i mean some of it is i mean there is some wild wild theories in here but i mean some of the dreams are like wow in the following pages i shall prove that there exists a psychological technique by which dreams may be interpreted and that upon the application of this method every dream will show itself to be a senseful psychological structure which may be introduced into an assignable place in the psychic activity of the walking state. And, you know, earlier he was, like, saying thank you to the people that were um, reading his stuff. Like, he was, like, so modest. You know, over a hundred and some years, you have you guys have no idea how many papers, how many books, how many theories have been based off of this guy's brain and thoughts. And I'm, that's why I'm saying, if he, had he not... Died in 1939. I think his brain should... Have, if he would have lived till at least 1950, we would have totally picked his brain apart completely here in the U.S. So I do believe that. I do believe he had way more ideas inside of his head that could have actually led to quicker um, theories being found and not, you know, drawn out so long. I shall furthermore endeavor to explain the processes which give rise to the strangeness and the obscurity of the dream and to discover through them the nature of the psychic for forces which operate, whether in combination or in opposition, to produce the dream. This accomplished, my investigation will terminate, as it will have reached the point where the problem of the dream meets with border pro broader problems. The solution of which must be attempted through other material. I must uh, presuppose... That the reader is acquainted with the work done by earlier authors as well as with the present status of the dream problem in science. Since in the course of this treatise I shall not often have occasion to return to them, for notwithstanding the effort of several thousand years, little progress has been made in the scientific understanding of dreams. You guys, I also wanted to include something in here that I did not include earlier. At the end of the, like in the 80s, it was believed that the brain did not heal also. And I wanna I only saying that because we're talking about dreams and and some people that have brain traumas or in car accidents and stuff, they, they report that they don't dream anymore. 
This has been so universally acknowledged by the authors that it seems unnecessary to quote individual opinions. One will find in the writings indexed at the end of this book many stimulating observations and plenty of interesting material and material for our subject, but little or nothing that concerns the true nature of the dream or that solves definitely any of its enigmas. Still less of course has been transmitted to the knowledge of the educated lady. But as I have not succeeded in mastering the entire uh, literature, which is widely uh, disseminated and interwoven with that on other subjects, I must ask my readers to rest content, provided no fundamental fact or important view be lost in my description. In his waking state, Deleuf knew only a few Latin names of plants and nothing of the Asplendium. To his great surprise, he became convinced, this is one of the dreams, you guys, that a fern of this name really existed and that the correct name was Asplendium Ruta Maria, which the dream had slightly disfigured. An accidental coincidence could hardly be considered, but it remained a mystery of Deleuf. And that's the person having the dream is Deleuf. Whence he got his knowledge of the name Asplendium in the dream. The dream occurred in 1862. Sixteen years later, while at the house of one of his friends, the philosopher noticed a small album containing dried plants resembling the albums that are sold as souvenirs to visitors in many parts of Switzerland. A sudden recollection occurred to him. He opened the herbium, which is a little, you know, a little case for herbs, an herbium, um, and discovered therein a splendium of his dream and recognized his own handwriting in the accompanying Latin name. The connection could now be traced. While on her wedding trip, a sister of this friend visited Deleuf in 1860, two years prior to the lizard dream. She had with her at the time this album, which was intended for her brother, and Deleuf took the trouble to write at the dictation of a botanist under each of the dried plants the Latin name. The favorable accident which made possible the report of this valuable example also permitted Deleuve to trace another portion of this dream to its forgotten source. One, I should have told you guys I fast forwarded to the first dream. I, I apologize about that. One day in 1877, he came upon an old volume of an illustrated journal in which he found pictured the whole uh, procession of lizards just as he had dreamed it in 1862. The volume bore the date of 1861, and Deleuve could recall that he had subscribed to the journal from his first appearance. That the dream has at its disposal recollections which are inaccessible to the waking state is such a remarkable and theoretically important fact that I should like to urge more attention to it by reporting several other hypermanistic dreams. Moore relates that for some time the word musadan, musadan, M-U-S-S-I-D-A-N, used to occur 
to his mind during the day. He knew it to be the name of a French city, but nothing else. One night he dreamed of a conversation with a certain person who told him that she came from Musadane. And in answering to his question where the city was, she replied, Musadane is a principal country, town, and the Department de la Dorodonide. On waking, Maury put no faith in the information received in his dream, the geo geographical lexicon, however, showed it to be perfectly correct. In this case, the superior knowledge of the dream is confirmed, but the forgotten source of this knowledge has not been traced. I found that really awesome. Like, wow. Jensen tells of a quite similar dream occurrence from more remote times. Among others, we may hear mentioned the dream of the elder Scaliger who wrote a poem in praise of celebrated men of Verona and to whom a man named uh, Brian appeared in a dream complaining that he had been neglected. Through Scaliger did not recall ever having heard of him, he wrote some verses in his honor and his son later discovered at Verona that a, that a Brian had formerly been famous there as a critic. Myers is said to have published a whole collection of such hypermanistic dreams in the proceeding of, oh, this is the book he wrote, Proceedings of the Society for Psychical Psychical Research, which are unfortunately inaccessible to me. I believe everyone who occupies himself with dreams will recognize as a very common phenomenon the fact that the dream gives proof of knowing and re recollecting matters unknown to the walking person. In my psychoanalytic, excuse me, in my psychoanalytic investigations of nervous patients, of which I shall speak later, I am every week more than once in position to convince my patients from their dreams that they are well acquainted with quotations, absence, expressions, etc., and that they make use of these in their dreams, although they have forgotten them in the waking state, I shall cite here a simple case of dream hypermanasia. Because it was easy to trace the source which made the knowledge accessible to the dream. Or to a dream, I'm sorry. A patient dreamed in a lengthy connection that he ordered a kansuwaka in a cafe. So I'm saying, I'm, I'm thinking this means coffee in a cafe. And after reporting this, in, this inquired that it might mean as he never heard the name before. I was able to answer that coffee was a Polish liqueur, which he could not have invented in his dream, as the night had long been familiar to me in advertisements. The patient would not at first believe me, but some days later, after he had realized his dream of the cafe, he noticed the name on a signboard at the street corner, which he had been obligated to pass for months, at least twice a day. I have learned from my own dreams how largely the discovery of the origin of some of the dream elements depends on accident. Thus, for years, 
before writing this book, I was haunted by the picture of a very similar form church tower, which I could not recall having seen. I then suddenly recognized it with absolute certainty at a point station between Salzburg and Reichenhall, which was in the later later 90s, which 1890s, you guys. And I had traveled over the road for the first time in the year 1886. In later years, when I was already busily engaged in the study of dreams, I was quite annoyed at the frequent reoccurrence of dream picture of a certain peculiar locality. I saw it in a definite locale relation to my person. To my left, a dark space from which my grotesque sandstone figure stood out. A glimmer of recollection, which I did not quite credit, told me it was the entrance to a beer cellar, but I could explain neither the meaning nor the origin of this dream picture. In 1907, I came by chance to Padua, which, to my regret, I had been unable to visit since 1895. My first visit to this beautiful university city was unsatisfactory. I was unable to see Guido's uh, frescoes in the church of the Madonna del Arena, and on my way there, turned back on being informed that the little church was closed on the day. On my second visit, 12 years later, I thought of compensating myself for this, and before everything else, I started out for Madonna del Arena. On the street leading to it, on my left, probably at the place where I had turned in 1895, I discovered the locality which I had so often seen in the dream with its sandstone figures. It was, in fact, the entrance to a restaurant garden. One of the sources, remember you guys, they said it was an entrance to a beer cellar earlier? One of the sources from which the dream draws material for reproduction, uh, material which in part is not recalled or employed in waking thought, is to be found in childhood. I shall merely cite some of the authors who have observed and emphasized this. Hildebrandt. And this is what he this is what Hildebrandt said. It has already been express, expressly admitted that the dream sometimes brings back to the mind with wonderful reproductive ability remote and even forgotten experiences from the earliest periods. Uh, here's one from uh, uh, Strumpel. The subject becomes more interesting when we remember how the dream sometimes brings forth, as it were from among the deepest and heaviest strata, which later years have piled upon the earliest childhood experiences, the pictures of certain places, things, and persons quite uninjured and with their original freshness. This not limited merely to this is not limited merely to such impressions as have gained vivid consciousness during their origin or have become impressed with the strong psychic validity and then later return in the dream as actual reminiscence causing pleasure to the awakened consciousness. On the contrary, the depths of the dream memory compromise also such pictures of persons, things, places, and early experiences as either possessed but little consciousness and no psychic value uh, at all.
or have long ago lost both, and therefore appear totally strange and unknown both in the dream and in the waking state until their former origin is revealed. That's pretty wild. And he gives you so many other doctors and their um, theories on dreams that it's hard not to love this book, you guys. And I encourage you to go out. You can find this book on um, Google Play Store. That's where I get all my books. I use my Google Rewards to buy books. Um, you can download this book um, at Barnes. You can buy it at Barnes & Noble. You can download it for free also on the Internet. It's all over the place. This is one of the greatest reads. Um, that Well, this is his... The, this is the beginning of Sigmund Freud's writing career, I believe, because when he came out with this book, it was a complete game changer. And when he got off of the cocaine addiction, he wrote more um, psychoanalysis um, papers and books on, uh, you know, how traumas affect people and how certain situations make your mind, you know, repeat itself. And he talks about cycles and he talks about... Um, he don't talk about neuroplasticity, but I mean, he literally was stating things about neuroplasticity in the 1800s, and I find that really awesome. Thank you guys for listening. This is your only, this is the only you podcast. This is your boy Lo Jackson. Tune in next time. Thank you so much.